This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. Thank you. Uh, I'm Isaac Martin, a professor of urban studies and planning and chair of the Department of Urban Studies and Planning here at UC San Diego. Uh, and it is my great honor and pleasure to introduce Tim Cole, uh, this evening's speaker. Tim Cole is a professor of social history and director of the Brigstow Institute at the University of Bristol. Uh, he is a prolific scholar in environmental and social history, historical geography, and digital humanities with interests in social, cultural, and environmental change in 20th century Europe, including post-war Britain. But he's here with us today uh, because the core of his research to date has focused on the Holocaust. And he's a leading scholar of the spatial turn in Holocaust studies. Tim Cole was the co-principal investigator on an interdisciplinary digital humanities project titled Geographies of the Holocaust. And he's the author of books including Images of the Holocaust, Selling the Holocaust about representations of the Holocaust, Holocaust City, the Making of a Jewish Ghetto, which concerns the spatial aspects of ghettoization in Budapest, Traces of the Holocaust, which reconstructs the social history of the Holocaust in Hungary by tracing the spatial journeys that Hungarian Jews and non-Jews made into and out of the ghettos. And Holocaust Landscapes, which treats the Holocaust as what he calls a place-making event and which concerns the spatial strategies also of survivors. Uh, the title of his talk today is Holocaust Landscapes, the Spatiality of Death and Survival. Please join me in welcoming our distinguished speaker, Tim Cole. Uh, thank you so much. Um, thanks for the invitation, and thank you for that um, very kind introduction, um, Isaac. Um, what I wanted to do um, with the time we have here this evening, I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit about um, the, the work of Holocaust landscapes. And, and what I want to do is take you on a journey. So in a sense, we're going to go on a, um, a, a kind of journey together through a variety of landscapes um, across Europe um, to try and think a bit about two things in particular. First, how um, the genocide was constantly on the move. So rather than a fixed event, um, it has a geography, a complex geography as well as history. And also the way that the victims themselves were constantly on the move. And one of the things I'm interested in here is not just the way that victims were moved by the Germans, but also the way that victims themselves um, sought to move themselves to avoid the genocide. So those are the kinds of ideas um, that we're going to be talking about a little bit um, today. Now, many of you may have been to Washington, D.C. If you've been to Washington, D.C. in the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., this will be a familiar sight to you. It um, greets you as you walk out of the elevator um, on the top floor where the permanent exhibition begins. And you, um, in a sense, form the other side of a ring. Um, on one side are the American troops that liberated um, the Ordoff um, concentration camp. On, on the other side becomes you, the visitors, um, who stand um, and look on this pile of, um, of corpses. In some ways, this is the, the end of the story um, that we'll get to today, but it's the beginning of the story, and I want to say something about that um, later for um, the visitor to this exhibition, because in many ways, this is the first encounter with the Holocaust um, for those of us from the Western world. So for Brits like myself, Americans, Canadians, 
It was these last camps that were the place where um, the Western Allies first encountered the events that we know um, as the Holocaust. Um, Camps that um, in particular grew up in 1944 all the way across um, Germany, mainly labour camps that became uh, a dumping ground for Jewish prisoners and other prisoners um, in 1944 and 45. And we'll get to that end of the story um, at the end of my story, but we should begin um, in the beginning. And what I want to do is to take us, first of all, to Poland. And to take us to the first um, Holocaust landscape in many ways, um, the landscape of the ghettos. This is a map from um, USHMM that shows um, a few of some of the the, the many um, uh, tens of ghettos set up in Poland after the Nazi occupation in uh, 1939. Shortly after the occupation, um, living space within cities is divided up. In the case of Warsaw, divided up between German living space, Polish living space, and Jewish living space, um, as a ghetto is created there in the fall of 1940. And one thing that's really struck me is um, this quote from um, a a Polish Jewish woman, Janina Bauman, who talks about how when ghettos were set up in Poland, in occupied Poland, um, that Jewish families like hers started asking um, a new question. And the question for us may seem a very strange question to ask, because we would give the answer that it's better to hide on the Aryan side. We would give the answer that it, it's not safe to move into the ghetto, uh, because we know what happens next in this story. We know that um, Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto were deported en masse to Treblinka um, from July, August and September 1942, sorry. and then there's a later um, set of deportations that takes place in 1943. And so this seems like an odd question, but it's a question that I think um, I wanted to pause and reflect on a little bit, because it's a question that makes a lot of sense at this moment in the war in 1940. Because at this moment in the war, um, Yanina Bauman and her family, like other Jewish families, don't know what's going to happen next. And at this point in the war, I think even the Nazis don't know what's going to happen next. At this point in the war, what's happened is that Jews have been placed into separate living quarters. And families like Yanina's are asking the question of whether it's best to move into this new type of accommodation within the ghetto, or whether it's best to try and hide out on the so-called Aryan side within Polish urban space. Yanina knows that they're a family that has a little bit of money, And so she thinks that they might have enough money to possibly survive, to be able to pay people off, um, to try and survive on the Aryan side. They've got some contacts with uh, uh, non-Jewish servants, former servants and neighbours. But she's conscious of what she talks about in this book of having Jewish look. Um, She feels that she looks too Jewish to be able to hide out on the Aryan side. And so she and her family decide to move into the ghetto. They feel that the ghetto at this point in the war is going to be the safest space for them. And one thing I want to suggest is that at every stage uh, in the the different kinds of landscapes that Nazi Germany created, Jewish families were trying to make these decisions about where to go. Where is the safest or the most dangerous place? Working with whatever knowledge they had. And in 1940, the Bauman family decides... Um, that it's best to move into the ghetto, that that's going to be safer than trying to hide out in the Polish capital where they fear um, being handed over to the Nazis um, by local inhabitants. 
So she moves into the ghetto, and it's interesting, I think, her reflection. She says, bad, but perhaps not too bad, different, thus exciting. This first Holocaust landscape of the ghetto initially in Warsaw in, in 1940 was bad, but perhaps not too bad for Yanina. For a wealthy Jewish girl, the thing that she was struck by was the fact that, and this is the case elsewhere, ghettos were always set up in the poorest parts of the city. And so she was now having to climb five steep flights of stairs to find herself at home, something that this bourgeois girl has never done before. And she's crowded into um, a tiny living space. Um, And in particular, this is troubling as she starts to um, court a young man for the first time in her life um, and has no place for privacy um, with this new um, boyfriend. But one of the things that's striking, I think, about this first landscape, this first stage of the Holocaust, is that there's some kind of familiarity to the spaces where Jews find themselves. That the, the initial story is not a story of deportation to concentration camps, but it's a much more subtle shift. Um, it's domestic space rather than concentration camp space. It's, it's an apartment, maybe a smaller and poorer apartment, but it's still an apartment. And it's apartment, critically, I think, that's often placed within Jewish quarters of cities, in more traditional quarters of cities. There feels like there's some kind of continuity. But that continuity quickly starts to become undone. By the summer of 1941, um, Jews are dying in very large numbers um, within the Warsaw Ghetto. And I think this really happens because of the way that the ghetto is not just restricted space, but it's space that's demarcated by a a wall, by a big wall placed around um, the city. Critically, that means that the Nazis can um, limit the amount of food that goes into the ghetto. Essentially, three different rations are operating in this divided city in 1941 and 42. Um, A large ration for Germans, a smaller ration for Poles, a tiny ration for Jews, a ration that's inadequate um, for life. And so Jews, like Yanina's family, are dependent upon smuggling. Uh, Young kids um, climbing over the ghetto wall, bringing food in. Um, It's estimated maybe 90% of the food that's eaten in the Warsaw Ghetto is bought on the black market by Jewish families like Baumanns that can afford that. Um, She has this moral dilemma, like so many wealthier Jews, of literally stepping over the bodies of poorer Jews um, lying in the streets of the ghetto who can't afford um, to buy food on the black market. And things also turn for the worse in the summer of 1941, not just because of hunger, but also because of disease. There's a a massive typhus epidemic that um, happens in the ghetto because of the cramped living um, conditions within the ghetto. This landscape that seems to be bad, but perhaps not too bad at the beginning, quickly becomes a landscape that's so much worse. And the Bauman family wonder whether they made the right call, whether they should have um, tried to hide out on the Aryan side, the thing that ultimately they do in 1943, rather than move into the ghetto. But whilst Jews are dying en masse in the Warsaw Ghetto in the summer of 1941, they're not being killed en masse until um, the summer of 1942 when they're deported to Treblinka. And to explore that story of, of when, in a sense, I guess the thing that we call the Holocaust, an intended genocide, an attempt to kill every Jewish man, woman and child takes place, we have to head much further east and we need to move to 1941 
and the occupation of Soviet territory, Operation Barbarossa, in June 1941. Um, as, as Nazi Germany moves further east and encounters um, large Jewish populations in former Polish and also Soviet territory. Now, this is the moment in, in the Far East, if you like, where I think the thing um, that we know as, as the Holocaust, as genocide, really um, starts to take place, where rather than Jews dying in mass numbers, Jews start to be murdered um, in mass numbers. Um, it, it's a, a thing that historians still um, debate, the precise timing, but what seems to happen is that initially in the summer of 1941, um, Jewish men are being shot um, by Einsatzgruppen units um, as suspected partisans. Quickly, Jewish women and children are also being shot, and it seems that there's this critical moment in the summer, fall and winter of 1941 when this becomes genocide, when there's a kind of radicalisation that takes place on the ground such that it becomes um, genocide. But, but what about Jews who encounter um, this new wave of violence in 1941? Um, what are the kinds of decisions that, that they make? And maybe I can illustrate that by just giving you one example from um, uh, a, 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 a Californian uh, who, who passed away recently, Earl Grief, um, who grew up in, in um, eastern um, Poland um, in this region. And one thing that I think is really striking is that as the Nazis move into this region in 1941, this family again is asking the question, well, where should we go? So they're asking the same question, which is, where's the safe place to go? Where's the safer place to go? Um, it's, a, it's a question that Jewish families are asking um, across eastern Poland and into the Soviet Union. And what the family decide is that it's going to be safest for one member of the family to flee east ahead of the Nazis into the Soviet Union. And that is the um, oldest sister, um, Reisel. So this is a family where you've got mum and dad, you've got an older daughter, and then two lads in the middle, Earl and Leibel, and then a little girl, Devorah, um, at the end. Now, Reisel decides to head eastwards, um, largely because she's a member of the Communist Party. So she's a keen um, political activist. She joins the Communist Party as a teenager. Um, and she's really fearful about what would happen if the Nazis find a Communist Party member. Um, the, the family have a big discussion about this, and they decide that the safest thing for her to do is to, to flee eastwards. And so she joins um, well over a million Jews who head eastwards. But she leaves not primarily as a Jew, but as a communist. She thinks that the greatest threat... Um, that would be faced, the family decides, by the Nazis is to communists, is to political opponents, not to um, those who are um, racialized as Jews. And so the rest of the family stay. They stay in their um, small town, um, a town where a ghetto is set up. Um, it's a kind of ghetto come labor camp, as is often found within this region. And again, the family are asking the same question as Yanina's family, which is, well, should we move into the ghetto? Or should we try and hide outside the ghetto? And through 1942 and into 1943, what's interesting about this family is that they, they, they move in and out of the ghetto. They sometimes spend a summer in the forest, um, trying to hide out in the forest. Um, by um, fall or winter, they often move back into the ghetto, um, a labor camp ghetto and then move maybe again back into the forest. They move between a number of landscapes as they try and work out what's the safest place to be. Reisel is over in the Soviet Union. The rest of them um, stay close to home. 
For this family, as for many others, um, uh, what happens is that this ghetto is cleared in a final action. Um, it's um, Jews are rounded up um, within the ghetto, marched to the outskirts of the town and shot in, in pits hastily dug in the forest. Um, Earl and Leibel managed to escape, um, survived the war, hiding out in the forest, um, but their mother and little sister, uh, Miriam and Devorah, are murdered um, just on the outskirts of the town. Now, one thing that strikes me about this family, and it's true of so many families in this region of Europe, in the East, is that their experience of the genocide is in, in incredibly um, small scale, that this entire family, Rizal apart, are either murdered or hide within literally just one or two miles of their family home. That this is not an experience of mass movement across the entire European continent to a place like Auschwitz-Birkenau, but it's a much more localised um, experience of mass murder. It's literally a murder within the neighbourhood, genocide within the neighbourhoods, um, in front of neighbours, and often with the help of, of neighbours. There's a critical shift that takes place in 1942. Um, it's a, a big shift in Nazi policy. Um, in 1941, um, the road network of the east of Europe has been used by the, the Nazis um, to move killers to communities like that um, of, of Earl's family, um, where Jews are, are shot in hastily dug pits, um, often in, in forests or in, in market squares. But as we know, there's a shift in 1942 where suddenly the rail network of Europe is mobilised and Jews are brought from all across Europe to a small number of centralised killing sites. This is the more familiar Holocaust in many ways for those of us within the Western imagination. It's the Holocaust that's central within the USHMM narrative in Washington, D.C., where Auschwitz is at the very heart of, of the exhibition. And it's a central story in um, late 1941 into 42-43, all the way through to 44, where Nazi Germany creates um, five, maybe six, um, purpose-built death camps um, within Europe. Um, Helmlo for Jews within Wodz, and then Treblinka, Schobibor, Belzec for Jews um, from Warsaw and in the eastern part of Poland, and then Auschwitz um, for Jews from across the European continent. Here's the moment where um, the Holocaust landscapes become focused upon these centralised um, killing sites and Jews are brought from, for example, the Warsaw Ghetto in July through September 42 to somewhere like Treblinka um, and murdered um, en masse. Now, one thing that's always struck me about this moment is how this becomes almost the point of a kind of internationalisation a sort of continental scale experience of the Holocaust. And this has incredible implications, I think, for, um, for victims, for prisoners. I show you a photograph of three um, Jewish um, girls from Poland from a, a place called Starowice. Um, on the left, you've got Renia, um, the little one. Um, in the middle, um, you've got um, Chris, the middle daughter. And then at the, the top, you've got Hannah or Anna, um, the oldest um, girl. They're a, a family um, who um, are in a labor camp in a ghetto in, in Starowice. And then in 1943, 44, um, are taken to um, Auschwitz-Birkenau. Um, and this is what Renier says about it. You get thrown into a situation of different nationalities, so you're beginning to understand the scope of this entire drama. And it's really interesting, when she talks about going to Auschwitz, she suddenly says that the thing that struck her at Auschwitz 
was that she was struck by something that other survivors talk about. If you've read Primo Levi, he talks about Auschwitz being a Babel, a place where multiple languages are spoken. If you look at, um, what, uh, some time ago, we looked at um, one of the, the block books from one of the barracks in Auschwitz-Birkenau, um, and you have maybe 22 different languages being spoken in a single barracks within a, the women's camp. And, and Renya arrives in this space where she can't understand what people are saying, because in, in, in the barracks that, that, that she and her sisters are taken to in Auschwitz, there's so many languages. But the one thing she does understand is that this is a European-scale genocide. Because up until this point, she says, we thought this was just our community. Up until this point, she had this experience of almost a kind of more myopic experience of thinking that the, the Nazis are doing something to Jews in Starovitsa, in our little community, in our little town, the Jews of Starovitsa are being persecuted, we're, we're being used as slave labor, and then suddenly she's taken to Auschwitz-Birkenau and she suddenly realizes, actually, they're not just doing this to the Jews of Starovitsa, they're doing this to Jews in, in Athens, in Thessaloniki, in Paris, um, in Amsterdam, uh, in, in Budapest. They're, they're doing this to Jews all the way across the European continent. And for her, this is a tragic moment because she suddenly realises that her mother, who's been taken from the ghetto um, just a few months earlier, has most likely been taken to her death, which was um, the case. Now, one thing that, that interests me about these girls is the way that they attempt to survive within Auschwitz um, is to try and in some ways bring some kind of geographical order out of that multilingual chaos and they use um, the structures of the camp um, to achieve that. Within the camp, two structures are particularly important. The row of five, which is the um, number that you're marched out of the camp to labor service and back in. And you're also critically given a bread ration in. Um, so bread is to be shared amongst five prisoners um, where you uh, are meant to uh, share it equally, um, split the, the, the half loaf um, into, into five um, portions. And the other is the um, triple-decker um, bunk beds. Uh, at this time in the women's camp, women sleeping three to a, a bunk bed, so a, a group of nine women. And what these three girls do is they, they quickly become a unit, um, a unit of other girls from Starovitsa, of girls from their locality. They find bunkmates who are from their town. They find those in their row of five who are also from their town. They try and, in a sense, recreate the geography of Poland within this multilingual space of the barracks because those are girls they know, those are girls they trust, and those are girls that they can speak to in their native tongue. Auschwitz is, for them, the most international of camps. Um, it's a place where they realise the scale of the Holocaust as a European-wide genocide, but it's also, in some ways, a place where, to survive, they try and create the most localised experience, the kind of geography of, of pre-war Poland recreated in a barracks and within the women's camp. Now, to get there, they're taken on the train network, as, as Jews were. Um, Jews from Thessaloniki um, are taken um, uh, a journey of hundreds of miles that takes um, a very large number of, of days. And one of the things that struck me about these journeys as Jews are moved um, across the European continent is how um, those within the cars try and, and get a sense of, of space, of place, try and keep some degree of familiarity 
Um, often at the top of the, the, the wagon, there's a small um, hole and a, a, a kid is, is hoisted up so that the kid can look out of the hole uh, and call out which stations they pass along the way um, to try and read um, the station signs and to tell those within the car where they're going um, on these journeys. Um, soon they enter into a place where the signs become less and less familiar that the places don't make any sense anymore. They've moved across a national border. They've entered into a place that they've never been before. And this is part of this, this experience, a profound experience of dislocation that takes place through this stage of mass movement of, of Jews across the European continent, who are not just moved from A to B, from Thessaloniki to Auschwitz, but are moved from a known place to an unknown place, to a strange place, and moved in um, a train car um, that's um, a place um, of, of, of almost a kind of shrinking of self. One thing that really struck me as I listened to um, interviews with hundreds and hundreds of survivors um, as they described their experience of the train cars is how infrequently they used vision visual metaphors as the way that they spoke about these train cars, um, that they relied upon another set of senses, and in particular the senses of smell, um, of, of touch, of taste. And these journeys became reduced down to the story of two buckets in so many survivors' narratives, one bucket full of water that quickly became emptied, so leading to terrible thirst, Another bucket empty that became full and overflowing, a toilet, a makeshift toilet in the train car that led to a terrible experience of not just smell but stench. And far from this being the, the, the moment of kind of hyper-modernity, of the most modern transport technology being deployed by Nazi Germany to move Jews to the camps, it's a moment, I think, of, of terrible dehumanisation. It's not just a story of dislocation but of dehumanisation as for many survivors, it felt that they'd become almost like animals as they were taken on these terrible train journeys um, to these centralised killing sites. But for many, it's not the last time that they're on the move. Train cars are swapped for the road network of Europe. And this is the moment in 1944 and into 1945 when entire camps are on the move, including the camp of Auschwitz. One thing that the Nazi state decides is to ensure that camps won't be handed over intact to the Soviet liberators, as was the case with Maidenek, but rather entire camp infrastructure and prisoner populations would be relocated, evacuated uh, westwards. This happens in Auschwitz in the middle of January 1945, as the entire camp, if you like, is put on the road, including those three sisters, um, Hanya, Chris and Renya. And the road network of Europe suddenly becomes um, the, the main arteries of uh, mass movements of um, prisoner populations, um, Jewish and non-Jewish, as they are moved um, further west away from the allies, the Soviet allies, who are advancing um, from the east. For survivors, it felt like this was always walking in ever-decreasing circles, because there was kind of less and less of the Reich as the months of the war went on. As the Allies came from east and west, there was a shrunken space called Germany, uh, and the road networks became increasingly clogged as prisoners were marched around and round in circles. For some, these were the places where they were liberated, liberated literally um, on the road uh, as camps became mobile. 
Now, one thing I think that's really significant about this moment is that for many East European Jews, this is the very first time they've ever seen Germany. It's the first time they've ever entered onto German soil. And what they see is they see a nation on the edge of defeat. And this gives them some hope that maybe they could survive. Maybe they could slip away. Maybe they could uh, run for it. And it's also the first time that Germans have seen um, long lines of emaciated Jewish and non-Jewish prisoners. It's this first major encounter, in many ways, between Germans and Jews at this late stage of the Holocaust. And it's a time when the roadsides of Europe become makeshift burial grounds um, for Jews who are shot whilst trying to escape which in many cases just literally means slowing down and no longer being able to walk, no longer being able to keep pace with this evacuation. For those who weren't liberated on the road, um, they were liberated instead in those camps that we thought about right at the beginning. The camps um, that had been hastily built in 1945 as part of a a last um, effort by the Nazis to um, uh, rearm and to win the war using slave labour as the process. Uh, The camps that ironically in some ways mean um, that families like uh, Renya and Hanya and Chris survive rather than being killed in a death camp because they seem to have some labour value to the Reich. And these camps in 1945 become dumping grounds um, for Jews who are being evacuated from uh, the camps like Auschwitz in the east. Uh, Places like Dachau, liberated by the Americans, or places like Bergen-Belsen, Um, liberated uh, by the British. And there are camps um, where it feels like killing, organised killing, is no longer taking place, but disorganised dying is taking place. It's really interesting, when I was listening to Survivor Testimony, um, sometimes an interviewer will ask the question, which I've always thought was a slightly dumb question, but um, you know, it's a question that I was almost glad they'd asked, which was, which was the worst camp you were in? It felt like to me a little bit naive to ask that question of a survivor, you know, kind of rank the, the camps that you were in, in order of best to worst. One thing that's really striking is that so many survivors say that the worst camp they were in was the last camp they were in, a place like Bergen-Belsen or Dachau, Ravensbrück, a women's camp, uh, where many um, uh, Jewish women ended up. And that's because it was a place of, of a total breakdown of the system. These camps became terribly overcrowded in the spring of 1945. As um, fellow Warschau remembered, they, they, were, they were just chaotic. It was nothing. It was no longer... A camp, there was no longer feeding, there was no longer an appellplatz, there was no longer labor, there was just nothing apart from, it seemed to her, death, pure death that had taken over, um, that the killing had ceased. Um, they were no longer burying the corpses, she said, they were no longer burning the corpses, they were just letting them stack up the corpses um, that the Western Allies encounter and that we encounter um, as visitors to Washington and DC. Now, I want to offer two um, closing thoughts, really inspired by um, uh, Fehler's quote here. Um, and the first is um, a question of how we represent and deal with something like chaos. Um, and then the second is to think a little bit more about that sense of, of East and Westward movement and chronology. 
But first of all, chaos. And this is something that we thought about quite a lot as a team, because one of the things that we've been doing is mapping the Holocaust. So a lot of the work that I do is, is um, geographical. Partly I do that through text by writing books, but we also do that through mapping projects. This is just a map created by one of my colleagues, Anne Kelly Knowles. Um, we're part of a bigger collaborative, which is to show the extent of um, the subcamp system around a number of, of major camps. Um, it's a, an attempt, if you like, if you look at Berg and Belson, where Fella ends up, to try and represent um, the way that Berg and Belson um, grows um, during um, the period 1944 into 45, as numerous subcamps are uh, added in. But it's not a, a map that shows chaos. It doesn't really represent the experience of chaos. And this is one of the kind of bigger reflections I think we've had as a team, that in some ways, as we map the Holocaust... We tend to map, in many ways, the Nazi experience of creating these landscapes. We map ghettos created by the Nazis, or we map camps created by the Nazis. We map the train network utilized by the Nazis, or we map the road network used by the Nazis. We map those places that I've talked about as we've kind of gone on this rattle-stop tour around Europe. What's much harder to map is the victim experience. What was it like to be a Jew in a ghetto or to be a Jew in a camp, to be a Jew on the road, a Jew in a rail car, which is the other thing that I've tried to introduce through victim testimony. And there's often a disconnect between um, the kind of mapping that we use and the kinds of things that victims say. This is um, a, a case um, brought to my attention by a colleague, Hannah Polingale, um, who looks at um, a Lithuanian survivor, Hannah Galani, um, who's interviewed by the Shoah Foundation. You may have used the interface offered by the Shoah Foundation, uh, where you see on the left-hand side of the screen the survivor giving testimony, and on the right-hand side of the screen you have a lovely Google map um, that maps their trajectory, so you kind of see where they move across Europe um, through a series of camps um, uh, during the Holocaust. But the thing that's interesting is that, um, that um, Pauline Galley points out is that um, Galani talks about the last camp she is in, Stutov, as, as chaos, in a sense, very much like um, Fela does. She describes it as a black hole. I was in a field in a no place, she says. She totally lost her bearing in the world. She didn't know where she was anymore. And the thing that Pollen Galli suggests is that the danger of mapping, the kind of accurate mapping that us geographers love to do, um, is that it doesn't deal with the reality of chaos or no place. It's hard to map chaos. It's hard to map no place. It's hard to map victim experience of, of the chaos of moving throughout the European continent. And that's something that um, the team that I'm part of, the bigger team that I'm part of, has been trying to do. And I just want to give you just one example, which I think is suggestive of how we might try and map the Holocaust, not just as a genocide created by the Nazis, but also as a genocide experienced by men and women um, who found themselves lost, who found themselves confused, who found themselves in chaos or no place. A team led by um, Simone Gigliotti um, and Eric Steiner and Mark Mazeroski were really interested in trying to map the evacuations out of Auschwitz. And in a sense, it's relatively easy to do that. We can uh, work out which roads Jews were marched on in January 1945 as the camp was evacuated. But it's much harder to understand what that experience of evacuation was like. What was it like for Jewish people who were marched along those roads? 
So one of the things they did was they started to look at the testimony of a number of uh, women, in this case uh, Polish women prisoners, um, who were marched out of the the camp. And to start to place that testimony along the route um, of of the road, Um, so starting at the camp on the top and then down to the um, location um, about 40 miles um, away um, west where the women were marched. And to start to do that with uh, multiple testimonies, so to take uh, testimonies, in this case given to post-war trials, and to start positioning them along the route of the road. And then to take every single letter from every single word within all of those testimonies, and to start create a new kind of map, which is a map which has gaps in it, which is a map which suggests that people remember certain parts of their journey, and they don't remember other parts of their journey. In a sense, a kind of mapping of this as kind of Nazi space, I think, is to say that this was a linear route, that the women were taken from this place and they were taken to that place. I think a mapping of this as Jewish place is to say, actually, um, some parts of this route were so terrible that I don't even speak about it, or I've forgotten it, or I, I don't quite remember what happened. It's a much more partial map. And that's one of the things that I think, in some ways, is part of the kind of ethics, maybe, of thinking spatially about the Holocaust is how do we think spatially about the Holocaust in a way that does justice to the victim's experience and victim's own experience of placelessness, of displacement, of feeling lost or alone, as well as mapping out um, a genocide that was on the move. And that's where I just want to finish. One of the things that I hope I've suggested is that the Holocaust was something that didn't just happen in time and over time, but also over space. And I think that matters. If you think about the dominant work on the Holocaust, it's been done by historians. Um, historians are obsessed with chronology, and I think that still is, is important. If you think about the major historical debates about the Holocaust, they often revolve around dating of when um, a decision was made by Nazi Germany to murder or either all Polish Jews or all European Jews, at what point of the war, in particular in 1941 and into 1942, was this decision made. But as I hope I've suggested, I think there's a need to insert geography to this story as well, because the Holocaust didn't just happen across time, uh, across 1939 to 45, or maybe from 33 um, to 45, or maybe from 41 to 45. But the Holocaust also happened across space, it happened um, across space, both in a, in, a, in a sense of the continent, that it started in many ways in the east with the Einsatzgruppen, and then it gradually moved west and changed shape as it moved west, but also that it happened within space, within particular kinds of spaces and places. It happened in ghettos and it happened in forests. It happened in camps. It happened in train cars. It happened along the road. It happened once more in camps, camps like Orduf, uh, liberated by uh, American troops in 45. And I think that matters because the genocide was constantly moving. It was constantly moving. It was constantly changing shape. It was uh, adopting different forms, and it was adopting different material forms, different landscapes, different places. And that meant that victims themselves also had to constantly adapt. They had to ask, where was the safer place to go, the more dangerous place to go? Where could they find safety? Where could they find themselves? Where, where could they feel, temporarily at least, maybe at home within those ever-changing landscapes um, of genocide? Final thought. I've always thought that there's a deep irony 
in the way that we've encountered the Holocaust in the post-war world. Because in a sense, as I started with that photograph uh, that uh, greets you as a visitor to the USHMM Museum, our encounter with the Holocaust happened with the very last landscapes, with the overcrowded camps of places like Dachau or Belsen um, or Ordruf. Those were the places liberated by American and British Canadian troops. And those are the places that entered into um, popular consciousness in the immediate aftermath of the war. If you think about what's happened since 1945, if we take much more a kind of geography of Holocaust memory and representation and also historiography, in a sense what we've been doing since 45 is going ever eastwards from those Western camps that dominated consciousness in the 40s and 50s to Auschwitz-Birkenau that dominated consciousness in the 60s, 70s and 80s and therefore forms the centre of the narrative of a museum created in Washington, D.C. in 93. And then finally we've headed east after the opening up of the Soviet Union to the little forest um, outside of town where Earl lost his mum and his little baby sister. In some ways I think we finally got to the beginning of the story. It's taken us almost 70 years to get there. But we finally reached those landscapes where the Holocaust started, where a decision was made um, on the ground to radicalise and to murder not just Jewish men, but also Jewish women um, and children. Um, This was an event that moved first east and then west. And we, I think, as post-war generations, have started in the west and we've gradually moved further east and encountered um, also those Holocaust landscapes, the place where the genocide began. Thank you. Okay, first question. What parallels, if any, can we draw from today's war in Ukraine? Wow, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I, th- I think, so I would say this, wouldn't I, because I'm a geographer cub historian, is that I think um, place and space matters enormously. I think that, that um, you know, I think there's a, a famous quote, um, nothing bar angels dancing happens on the head of a pin. It's um, drawn on medieval theology, um, where they have debates about how big angels are and, and what they dance on. Um, but everything takes place in, in real material spaces and places, um, and everything takes place um, in parts of the world. That's true of genocide, it's true of war, um, and that there's a dynamic to war and genocide that isn't just a chronological dynamic, but is also a spatial or geographical dynamic, um, and that warfare, I think, like genocide, looks different in different places, urban warfare. You know, looks very different from um, rural warfare. And I think that's something that you see within the context of, of the Ukraine, that the war in Ukraine is a war that's shifting. Um, and I think that, you know, the challenge, I think one of the things I've really been struck by, I guess, in this, the, the work that I've done, one of the things I did was I listened to hundreds and hundreds of, um, of survivors' um, testimony. And the thing I was really struck by was um, that in the context of genocide and war, if, if you take, you know, the Second World War, and if we think about the present war, is that ordinary families are making decisions about all the time on the basis of the knowledge they have, which is always limited and always changing, of what's the safest thing to do. And so families um, in the context of the Holocaust, if you think of um, Jewish families, um, say in in eastern Poland, they're, they're, they're trying to work out, are the Nazis going to come for the men or the women as well? And they think they're probably going to come for the men because we think that they'll want men as 
they'll think they're a threat, military threat. They, they'll think they might be partisans. They'll want them for labour. And so what they'll often do is they'll say, let's, it's probably safest to split the family. And what we'll do is we'll send the men over there and we'll keep the women here. Sounds familiar? That, that sense of thinking about gender as a, as a key variable in, in thinking about survival, about whether men and women are safer in different places, is something that I think Jewish families are trying to make sense of. Or another example, Jews going into hiding... I think quickly Jews realize that it's hard to hide more than two people. The, the Frank family are very unusual during the Holocaust. They're almost exceptional in fam, hiding as a family group. Jewish families, instead of deciding, like, how many of us can hide in what places? And so I, I think those, those kinds of decisions, in some ways, I guess, because I'm a social historian, I'm always interested in some ways in the little people, like the kind of ordinary people, who I think are always making these decisions in the context of, of ever-changing circumstances of where could we be safe? As a, as a family, as a basic unit. And I think that's as true in the Ukraine as it was during the Holocaust, that families are making those decisions. You know, as we stand here, as I stand here tonight, they're making those kinds of decisions. You know, and it's something I often reflect on myself. You know, I've got kids. I often think, like, you know, well, what, what do you do as a family in those kind of contexts? Like, where's safe is, is a kind of question. Um, you know, that's a, a sort of a question that I think dominates in war and genocide. Thank you. Uh, next question. What is your notion of the spaces left behind, uh, spaces such as homes, businesses, Jewish institutions? Yeah, that's, that's a really great question, because that's one of the things, isn't it, that's so striking about, in particular, um, Poland. If you think about the death rates in, in Poland, um, it's a place where um, uh, Jewish communities are, are wiped out, as we know, um, en masse. I think one of the things about the Polish case is that this is a particularly um, bloody year, 1942, when um, Polish Jews are being murdered. Um, it's the year when um, most Jews are killed um, uh, during the Holocaust. By the end of 1942, most Jews have been killed. Um, smaller numbers, if you like, are killed in 1943 and 1944. And so the, the, the attack upon Polish Jews is particularly um, uh, uh, poor. It's particularly, it's particularly harsh. One thing I think that's interesting is if you remember those three sisters, the girls from Starowitsa, so they survived the war, um, and what they do at the end of the war is they think, uh, we better head home, so we better go east. Now, a lot of this is about the way that um, uh, they uh, want to try and get news of their mum and dad. Um, so, um, as you know, um, one of the things, the big shift from ghettos to camps is that ghettos are a place where Jews still live in family groups. Camps are places where Jews are separated along gender lines into separate men's and women's camp. And so the three girls arrive with their dad at Auschwitz, but the last time they see their dad is on the selection lines at Auschwitz, and then dad goes into the men's camp, they go into the um, women's camp. So what they think is, if dad survives, what he'll do is go home. And so because we've survived, we better go home, because home's like the place where, where he'll go. Like we, he's not going to come and find us here, like in Germany. Um, he's he's going to go home. And so they head home. So they get as far as um, Wodz um, in Western Poland. Wodz forms a kind of like, it's almost like a sort of new um, place of, um, occup uh, of where um, Polish Jews live in 45 that return from the camps. And they meet um, a guy um, who says, um, what, what are you going to do? They're going to say, we're going to go back to Starowitz. He's like, don't do that. I wouldn't go back to Starowitz. You won't get a friendly welcome there. And they're like, we've got to go back to Starowitz because, you know, we've got to find out about dad. So he's like, whatever. So they go to Starowitz. They arrive in Starowitz. They realize that the entire community has been murdered. They realize quickly that their mum and dad has been murdered. They realize there's incredible hostility towards them. Uh, because of fears of whether they want their property back. And so they head back to Wodge, a place of relative safety. And Wodge forms this place, I think, an important site uh, for Polish Jews, those Polish Jews that survive. It's a place where, in a sense, you can start to rebuild 
community life a little bit within um, that city um, in, in, in Western Poland. But this is one of the, the great tragedies, I think, of, of, um, of the genocide of the Holocaust, is that it's not just, and I, I say just carefully, it's not just the murder of, of, of millions of individuals, but it's the destruction of entire communities, you know, entire ways of life um, who are wiped out, that these places are never the same again uh, because you know, in the, some of the best are lost. Um, whole ways of life and traditions um, are lost. And that's certainly the case in a place like Starowice, um, you know, where these girls are from. Uh, they head west um, and ultimately end up in, in the United States and Canada. You used the term genocide several times in your talk, uh, and the term was uh, coined during World War II. Are historians, in your view, uh, justified in using it to describe the experiences uh, before that? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Like, Armenian genocide is one of the big kind of debates. I mean, I, th I think um, genocide emerges as a, a, a term um, uh, coined um, by um, political social scientists as a way of thinking about the intentional murder um, of an entire people group. Um, so uh, a, an attempt to um, wipe out not just an, an elite, um, but to wipe out all um, uh, people. And so it is a term that I use to refer to any historical context where that happens. So I'm happy to use it um, to refer to that. Um, and I, I think within um, the Second World War, I use it specifically around, about Jewish victims. So I recognize that there's other victims of Nazi Germany, but I think there's something very particular about the Jewish experience, which is that I think this is an, an intended genocide. It's an attempt to kill um, uh, an entire people group, and therefore I think it's a term that's, that's useful for that. I think the other group in, in the Second World War context, I think, is Roma Sinti gypsies, where I think, again, you see an attempt at a genocide in a smaller scale, not on a, an entire continental scale, but again, that attempt to wipe out an entire people group um, in a way um, that, that, you know, I think you don't see for other victim groups. But I think we've seen it before and we've seen it since, um, that kind of a, a, a state attempt um, at um, destroying an entire people group, such that, you know, kids are as much a, a victim as, as adult males. So this is a question about the death marches. Uh, was the policy of mobile retreat of the camps ad hoc or centrally directed? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So it's certainly something that's coming from the top. The SS are saying, like, we need to kind of clear these camps. But what seems to happen is that the routes are left to be decided much more at the ground level. So it's, it's kind of like the vague plan is evacuate the camp. Actually, how that happens is determined much more um, locally. The thing that um, I see is that I, my sense is that this is not just about... Um, moving prisoners, but it's about, in a sense, moving the entire camps. I really see the death marches as almost an entire camp system on the road. It's almost like a kind of barracks has been picked up and is being marched down the road network of Europe. Um, gone are the barbed wire fences that surround the camp, but they've been replaced with something equally, if not more deadly, which is the sight lines of the guards. And so the guards um, at the front and the back and at the side form, in a sense, almost a kind of bounded space a kind of demarcated territorial space that's, that's moved down the road network of Europe. And I think that's the, the context where you get so many deaths along um, the death marches, is that it's the, the sheer movement, the speed of movement, is, it means that so many people can't keep up with the pace, so many prisoners can't keep up with the pace. And so their falling to the ground is seen as an escape. It's seen as an attempt to get out of the, the barbed wire surrounds, out of the territory of this mobile camp. Um, and therefore they're shot um, uh, and left uh, by the side of the road where they're buried um, in the ditches. 
So about two more questions. This one is really uh, intriguing. Uh, have you incorporated cognitive psychology to this project? Um, the question actually begins with, this looks like a cognitive map over a physical map that has a functionality in an otherwise chaotic and disconnection to place. So have you incorporated cognitive psychology? Um, not, not explicitly cognitive psychology, but I think one thing that um, we are really interested in doing when we're trying to map testimony in a sense, map narrative, map memory, is to think about um, doing something which I guess is akin, because memory is really important here, is, is the fact that, that one of the things we're interested in doing is, is mapping the places that people remember and don't remember and thinking about, well, what does that suggest about their experiences of those particular places? Um, uh, where are the places that people are silent about and the people that pe uh, places that people talk about? Where are the places where people have a very clear sense of where they are and the places where that disappears? If you could think about the trajectory of survivors, um, what are the points where, where things start fraying? where they, they can't remember quite where they were, because that might be really important in understanding a little bit about the experience, about themselves, about the nature of memory. And so we're not drawing explicitly upon this, but I think it's, it's straying into that area where we're, we're really interested in thinking about how do you map memory. So final question. I think this really um, fits on nicely. Uh, how did you discover these survivors that went back to their homes and reestablished themselves in those spaces and places? Um, so, I th actually, one, one thing that's interesting about that question, I think, is that the difference between, um, say, Polish-Jewish experience and um, families like um, Earl Liebel's family. Because um, one, one of the things that you find within um, the, the, the East, um, in, in, say, Belarusia or Ukraine, um, is that because the genocide is so localized, you don't have this dispersion across the European continent that you have in other cases. So if you think about this stage in 41... Um, and 42 in the Far East. It's, it's killing, like I said, very much on a neighborhood scale or hiding on a neighborhood scale. So everything takes place you know, within a, a, a tiny area around a, a community compared to this later stage where Jews are being moved across the European continent. So, you know, da uh, Danish Jews, um, uh, 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 French Jews, Dutch Jews, um, Greek Jews are being moved everywhere. Now, one thing I think that's, that's striking is that what you find in the Far East... Um, in, the, in the kind of former Soviet territory, what's um, uh, uh, Baltic states, um, Ukraine, Belarusia, is that many, um, in a sense, don't go back because they're already there. So you've got this kind of different geography, I think, across Europe, where it depends if you've been moved as to whether you go back, whereas if you haven't been moved, in a sense, you're just still there. I mean, going back is like literally just, you know, like I leave the forest in the case of Earl and I go back to, the, to my home, which is, you know, like a, a mile or two away from, from where the forest that I'm, I'm in hiding. As opposed to like the girls from Sarovica, going back is, is, is about leaving Ravensbrück and it's about making your way to watch and it's making your way to, to Starovica to see if your dad's still alive. And so I think what you find because of the, the, the nature of the genocide is that the genocide meant that for some Jews who'd been dispersed across the European continent, going back meant a journey of a, a long way to a place where they often then quickly left. For Jews within Soviet territory in particular, there wasn't a going back, there was just a staying. And I think one, one thing that that led to was um, the challenge of, of staying put in a place where um, family members were literally buried in a mass grave in a place that you walk by every day. So um, there's people that I, I look at who talk about how, 
you know, she talked about the fact that she'd, every day she'd go to work across a park where she knew her mum was buried somewhere in a mass grave. And that was just the day-to-day reality of her entire post-war life. Or uh, a woman in Budapest whose um, husband was shot into the Danube, who every day when she went across the the Danube on the the tram, she just wouldn't look out of the window because this river was suddenly polluted. And so I think in some ways there's a sense that there's because of the geography, the nature of the the genocide, I think those who, who stayed put in a sense lived with the aftermath in a way, a very different kind of way. It was, it was in the soil. It was still in, it was still in the soil in, in a way that it, it wasn't so much for Jews who I think had already been relocated, dislocated, who I think often were then Jews, like the girls from um, Saravica, who headed back into the DP camp system and ultimately to North America.